Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, a warm welcome to Money Talk. I'm Peter Lewis. This is the show that brings you all you need to know about today's business and finance headlines from Hong Kong and the rest of the Asia Pacific region. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And thank you for making us one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. In the business and finance headlines for Thursday the 12th of October, Federal Reserve officials agreed in September that the US Central Bank should proceed carefully on interest rate decisions, while acknowledging that monetary policy should remain restrictive for some time, according to minutes from their latest meeting. While there were conflicting opinions on the need for more policy tightening, there was unanimity that rates would need to stay elevated until policymakers are convinced inflation is heading back to 2%. The U.S. producer price index came in hotter than expected on Wednesday, with both the headline and the annual core rates accelerating. Producer prices in the U.S. rose half a percent month over month in September. That's the lowest in three months, following a 0.7% rise in August, but above market forecasts of 0.3% core producer prices in the United States were up by 0.3% over the previous month following a 0.2% rise in August and slightly above market expectations. The Bank of Japan is reportedly considering raising its inflation outlook for the current fiscal year ending March to 3%, up from the current forecast of 2.5%. Japanese media outlet Kyodo News reported that the upward revision is meant to reflect price hikes that have been broadening further than expected and rising crude oil prices, with the yen's depreciation also boosting import prices. China's exports of electric passenger vehicles doubled in September. China-based automakers shipped around 91,000 electric vehicles. Exports of the cars were up 107% from a year earlier and accounted for a quarter of the country's total auto exports for the month. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investments. We're also going to look at how Hong Kong's mandatory provident funds have performed so far this year with Francis Chung, Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. If you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks closed higher in a choppy trading session as declines for yields on longer-dated treasuries accelerated following the release of the minutes from the Federal Reserve's most recent meeting. It was the fourth straight winning day for the three major averages. The S&P 500 climbed 0.4% to 4,377. The Dow was 66 points higher, that's 0.2%, at 33,805. The Nasdaq Composite added 0.7%, ending at 13,660 and closing above its 50-day moving average for the first time since September the 14th. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note fell for a third straight day on Wednesday and was down 10 basis points at 4.56%, that's its lowest level in October. The yield on the 2-year note was unchanged at 4.99% after falling below the 5% mark for the first time in a month on Tuesday. Oil slumped on Wednesday after the biggest jump in six months on Monday as markets considered the fallouts from the Israel-Hamas conflict along with the prospect of fresh economic stimulus in China. 
On Wednesday, Brent futures were down 2.1% at $85.82 a barrel. The losses accelerated in New York trading on reports that Iranian leaders were surprised by the Hamas attacks. The dollar index was down 0.1% at 105.72 on Wednesday, remaining below November highs touched last week as traders digested fresh PPI data and the FOMC minutes. The yen was weaker versus the dollar, with the US dollar rising back above 149 Japanese yen. The Chinese yuan was 0.1% weaker in Shanghai at 7.2992 renminbi. In Hong Kong, stocks recorded their fifth straight day of gains following a Bloomberg report that China is considering further economic stimulus. Policymakers are apparently weighing the issuance of at least 1 trillion yuan of additional sovereign debt for spending on infrastructure. The Hang Seng Index rose 228 points, or 1.3%, to 17,893. That brings the gains for the benchmark index over the past five days to over 4%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite climbed 0.1% to 3,079 and looks like the Hang Seng is going to climb again at the open this morning. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 1%, that's around 190 points. The index should start the day at about 18,080. And you can get more details on the latest market movements, which you'll find in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. As always on a Thursday morning, we find Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Hi, good morning. And also with us is Mark Franklin, who's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management here in Hong Kong. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. Um, Let's start looking at the minutes of the Federal Reserve's last meeting, which was in September. The US Central Bank agreed that it should proceed carefully on interest rate decisions while acknowledging that monetary policy should remain restrictive for some time. That's according to the minutes of their latest meeting. Policymakers left interest rates on hold in September and said there were now two-sided risks in pursuing its 2% inflation target. Officials differed on whether any additional interest rate increases would be needed, though on balance they indicated that one more hike would be likely. But while there were conflicting uh, views on rates, on further policy tightening, there was unanimity that rates would need to stay elevated until policymakers are convinced inflation is back to 2%. Um, Andrew and Mark, the, the, I'm getting the impression the narrative is changing a little bit now on what the Fed um, is thinking about. The, the latest thinking seems to be uh, that the rise in Treasury yields um, has in effect done the tightening work um, for them, and that's equivalent to really another uh, 25 basis point rate hike, although the problem is, of course, that's uh, that started to unwind over the last three days. But nevertheless, is that does that make sense? Is that the, the Fed's thinking at the moment? I'm afraid reading all this tells me absolutely nothing. In a sense, Fed has been hiking rates since March uh, 2011 times. And uh, they're simply saying, well, we will carry on increasing as long as inflation doesn't show a specific and consistent trend to the 3% to the 2% mark we're aiming at. And perhaps we don't want to do anything in a, uh, come on, you, you've heard this before repeatedly. You know, it is, I didn't read anything there that actually made me change my mind at all as to what they are thinking, my interpretation of what they're thinking. So, end of story. We're going to have the inflation numbers uh, today, I think. And uh, if they are just above or below 3%, we're going to hear the same story. 
is below 3%, will say, well, perhaps they may not. If it is above 3%, they will say, well, they may. And that's exactly what they have said. Mm. So they're going to be absolutely consistent. But they're, they're Sorry, very data-dependent, aren't they? So they're, they're presumably yeah, going to look at this closely, this inflation data? This, this is not uh, hugely value-added. Uh, perhaps not because, uh, with, uh, unfortunately, with the uh, Israeli emergency, let's call it, uh, oil went up and then uh, came down again, and there has been no sign that the oil producers are going to do anything inadvertent. Mm-hmm. Okay, in other words, they're not going to weaponize the price of oil. So that leaves United States at least with a sense of uh, of relief because it is one of the immediate impacts on American inflation, the price of oil, because of course they are the ones that drive most of the cars. Okay, Mark, are you any more excited than Andrew is about the Fed thinking? That there's definitely a shift in their consensus, which is that if they keep rates steady here, it gives them a greater chance that they can hold rates at these levels for longer, which is what they believe is necessary in order to genuinely combat this inflation cycle. So that that has been the shift there, which has meant that um, some further rate increases have been priced out. That being said, though, rate cuts continue to be pushed back and in some cases priced out until the aftermath of the events of this weekend. So there's been a shift in terms of their thinking. But the one comment which I thought was somewhat naive was the idea that because bond yields had risen and effectively tightened financial conditions, that had done some of the work for for the Fed. Mm. Now, the problem with that is as soon as you say something like that, (laughs) bond markets reverse and yields start to lower. Which is exactly what they've done. So by making that comment, not only have they undermined their credibility, they have also effectively highlighted uh, the effectively the lack of their complete control over the situation. Yeah, because the, the bond yields the, have now given up all of their October spike, haven't they? We're back to Correct. where we started from um, at the Correct. beginning of the month. So they, they've no longer got the tightening now that they were, they were saying was doing the job for them. Correct. But if, you know, coming back to inflation, obviously we'll see what the data looks like tonight. But over the last two to three months, core CPI month on month, if you annualise it, is coming in at around two and a half to three percent, and that has probably underpinned their growing confidence that, that a soft landing is conceivable. The problem is um, the minutes that bond yields start to fall and rates rally and ease financial conditions, you then set off a new uh, renewed pulse of consumer spending, and you're seeing savings rates roll over again in the US, which then subsequently creates further upwards pressures on inflation three, six, nine months further down the line. So it's it's really something that is dynamic. It's not a static picture. And any insinuation by Fed officials that it is a static situation um, is risky. Yeah, and I, I suppose, I mean, the problem is um, in, in the, the signs are that the disinflation is, is over, isn't it? We've had now PPI, core PPI, rising three months in a row. Um, presumably, the Fed's got to start looking at that a bit more closely. Oh, I think that there's been disinflation in goods for some time, Um and effectively, those parts of the economy, whether it's retailers or so on, that were sitting on excess inventory, 
have had to take decisive measures to, to bring that inventory down, which has obviously meant heavy discounting. The key question for the Fed will be, what about services? There you have seen still positive inflation, but but somewhat normalised levels over historical time periods. Um, but then the labour market, according to official data, still looks resilient. You're still seeing a quite a healthy degree of jobs growth. Uh, and there, as a result, um, there won't be further downwards pressure on services inflation, with the one exception being what's going on in the or the rental real estate markets. That, that's, a, that's a murkier picture. It's harder to understand right now. Mm. Andrew, the, the normal um, assumption is that once we get to peak rates and, and investors and markets are assuming that we've reached that point now, normally after about six months, rates start coming down. And that's in effect what the market seems to be pricing in um, as well that the, the rates are going to start coming down by um, probably June of next year. Do you think they're right, though, to, to assume that? I mean, the, the, these are not normal times at the moment, are they? Uh, the answer is no, they are not. And uh, to the extent that Fed has been fairly, con- not fairly, has been incredibly consistent in what they want uh, to aim. And if we all agree that uh, we grit our teeth, we squint our eyes, and if the six-month trend looks as if it is staying uh, roughly around the 2%, the answer is, is yes, they will cut interest rates, but that's zero surprise. Mm. And please don't tell me that the markets have priced it in. The markets priced in absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay, they will price it in when it comes and literally sits, well, I will not say the proverbial face, but sits on their lap, okay? And they, they, they genuinely know that that's, that's the case. So I'm afraid, uh, I, as I said, I've stopped wasting my time about, uh, about uh, guessing Okay, what the Fed exactly thinks and when interest rates are coming down or are not coming down. Fed is very consistent and I get on with my life with other things. My Fed, you know my 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 faith on individual specific sectors and individual uh, prices of specific assets that are not based at all on interest rates, one of which is defense and unbelievably grotesquely unfairly what has happened in the last four days puts a huge stick against my preference of defense goods my mm. god so have another fist here yeah so if, if we're going to get used to this period now of believe the fed and you know rates are going to be higher for longer and they're going to stay at these i i don't like using the word elevated levels because to me five percent is not particularly elevated it's just more normal um levels but nevertheless if we're going to get used to rates at these sort of levels how does that change um your investment strategy presumably we've got to look at new things now uh, you know in in a, in a world of higher rates and new strategies new products or new markets well, it will change my attitude to the extent that uh, I will stop telling that anybody that will listen, don't, don't waste your time trying to guess the Fed where it's going, because now we know, we know exactly where it is. In other words, as I say, we might be at elevated levels. And uh, look at other things. Yeah, I agree with you. Look at areas where interest rates are of no interest. Mm. And I found my three areas. Okay, so I'm, I'm quite happy with that. Not smug. I'm simply saying, well, at long last... I think I will be able to add some value as opposed to simply reiterating what the Fed has actually said. I'm not being sarcastic and neither dismissive. Okay, I simply repeat what I'm told. No more than that. There is zero value added in what I'm saying because I simply repeat what I read in the in the Fed report. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll steady as it goes. It might be too high, might be too much. We will add data-driven. Uh, it is looks okay so far, but not for us cutting and not for us increasing. Well, okay, good. Mark, I, I imagine this must be an interesting time to be a multi-asset class fund manager 
Um, particularly because you know when you're looking across asset classes you're looking closely at correlations between them and then normal correlations between the various asset classes um, don't seem to be working in the in the way that they used to them some typical correlations seem to have broken down and and don't seem to be moving um, like that. I mean, particularly, you know, maybe the relationship between stocks and bonds, but also other asset classes as well. Are you finding that? And is this causing difficulties for you when you have to start, you know, managing across various asset classes? It's a great opportunity for us as investors and guardians of our clients' capital to try and differentiate ourselves. And then one of the ways that we try and do that is to properly diagnose the macroeconomic regime that we're in and also to acknowledge that we have changed regime so by that i mean if you look at the late 2010 so 17 18 19 um inflation and volatility was continuing to compress um monetary conditions were extremely easy and so everything went up and so uh, when you were living in that time and investing that time you said well correlations now are very different to what they used to be mm-hmm. fast forward to a more inflationary environment and in some cases such as with europe in a stagnation stagflation type situation then it calls into question the utility of owning um traditional fixed income securities in your portfolio as a means of ballast against equities so an inflation environment an environment where policy settings particularly monetary policy settings are tight there's no longer a scenario of easy money yes um, correlations and relationships between asset classes change and then the other consideration as well um, and this is something that our clients and our and our and our sales colleagues frequently mention to us is that cash now becomes a viable positioning portfolios because of the yield mm-hmm. that you can receive, particularly in US dollars. And so not only do we have to design solutions that offer a material pickup over cash rates in order to justify the risk of undertaking an investment in a, in a solution, we also have to acknowledge that, that that changes the appeal of more traditionally considered defensive asset classes as well. Mm. How do you deal with the traditional, what, what a lot of advisors tell clients to do, which is to have the 60-40 portfolio based on an allocation of 60% to equities, 40% uh, to, to fixed income. Um, that portfolio isn't really working at the moment, is it? Because um, equities and bonds are, are moving together rather than being inversely correlated. We've seen that this year. We had a, um, a period um, last year. If you look at something like the iShares core growth allocation ETF, the one with the ticker symbol ARR, um, it was down about 16% last year. So is the 60-40 portfolio um, over now or do we have to think of other ways of, um, of, of allocating assets? Uh, we would take the view that it's horses for courses. So a 60-40 setup um, is appealing and makes sense in an easy money, low inflation environment, macroeconomic mm-hmm. regime. When you shift into an inflationary, stagflationary environment, it makes much less sense. And you need to identify from a strategic point of view asset classes that are more resilient in the face of both high and unpredictable volatile inflation. So that's why certain exposures to commodities, floating rate notes, inflation-linked bonds um, offer greater utility than nominal government bonds in that 40% allocation. And then the other question that we have to ask ourselves is we need to vary up and allocate our risk budget across different time horizons. So one situation that we, we, we approach now is that on a medium-term basis, we see a lack of risk premium in risk assets. We still see very, very tight monetary policy across most of the central banks apart from the Bank of Japan. 
that creates a cautionary backdrop for risk assets. That being said, tactically on a shorter term basis, having seen equity markets correct over the third quarter of this year, having seen bond yields rise significantly and term premiums start to increase, maybe tactically there are opportunities to selectively allocate risk to risky assets or allocate risk to asset classes that have suffered significant drawdowns on a shorter term basis because whether it's the Fed signaling a shift in their thinking around the trade-off between raising rates in the short term and keeping rates longer, whether the growth data is continuing to surprise on the upside, the corporate earnings cycle may be lasting longer than some people had feared. So we can be a bit more constructive short term, but we still remain wedded for the time being to a cautious, more medium term perspective. So to summarise, need to vary time horizons, need to correctly diagnose the macroeconomic regime that you're in, 6040 does have a place, but at different points in time and not necessarily in the current environment. Okay, very interesting. Andrew, what do you make of what's happening in the bond markets at the moment? We've seen this big spike in yields and then that all reverse um, in just three days, um, presumably because Treasury bonds are seen, being seen as a safe haven at the moment. But also this comment from uh, Fed officials about um, you know the tightening in the financial markets doing their work um, for them. But well, what, what are you seeing here in terms of this volatility in the treasury bond market and what do you do? For me, there is a, a huge fundamental uh, inconsistency, not in what the markets are doing, but the markets are doing whatever they are doing. And it's not that uh, I discovered the truth. I hang on at the DXY, that's the index of US dollars versus a, a bundle of uh, other currencies. Well, mm-hmm. that has increased. It has it has varied, but it has increased and has stayed high. So that is a preference for the US dollar. At the same time, of course, uh, until about uh, three or four days ago, uh, US dollar denominated assets all the way going south. Well, now, if I'm selling both shares and I'm selling bonds, what do I receive? I receive US dollars. And what do I do with it? I hang on to it for dear life. And that's why the dollar is stronger. Well, hello, make up your mind. You know, you cannot like US dollars and at the same time sell consistently US dollar assets. And mm. that leads to that strange correlation that the equities and, and bonds move up uh, move up together. Hence, uh, since this is in inverted commas understandable, okay, but not necessarily explicable, I'm much more cautious on the fixed income side, given that we have this huge fundamental discrepancy. Mm. Okay. Wait a minute, you like US dollars. Why you like US dollars? Because we don't like at all US dollar denominated assets. So presumably I'm keeping it in cash. And this reflects partially to what uh, Mark has said. And hence, I'm much more cautious as far as fixed income is concerned, not because clearly in inverted commas, the next move in interest rates are going to be down rather than up, but because I'm still looking at my DXY index and <laughs> I muse and smile and i said well clearly all of us collectively don't know what the hell is going on Mm. in in this new environment and and it is a new environment isn't it and one that we've got to get used to of higher rates typically in the past when you've had higher rates higher yields people tend to go for hard assets things like real estates things like commodities is that a play that you would look at now in this in this environment yeah uh, since commodities uh, have to be driven to a considerable extent of what's happening with China, and uh, hence the reason why the Aussie dollar, which is, has been one of my favorites, uh, has taken a severe beating, and it is just about trying to, to recover, I would prefer to keep them aside because they might be very specific to a history issue. I mean, sorry, to a specific story issue. Is the Chinese economy 
finally getting better or not. Again, that will tell you something about iron, about coal, uh, even possibly about about oil. So hard commodities, no. And then, uh, Peter, property, it's such a specific issue. What, I would buy property in China right now? I mean, uh, unlikely. Ditto in Hong Kong, whilst at least in the case of Hong Kong, the interest rate picture is still, as you say, elevated interest rates, whatever that means. Mm. So even when you come to, to specific issues, okay, buying real assets, uh, it is something that uh, I tend to avoid because I will sound like an economist. Ask me a country and I'll give you a completely different answer from country to country. In other words, it's going to be a very specific uh, 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 story-driven uh, situation as opposed to an overall asset-driven situation. Mm. What, what do you think, Mark? Do you think in a, in a higher interest rate environment, you know, traditionally, hard assets do tend to perform well? I don't mean that you have to go out and buy real estate, physical real estate, but you can get exposure to that. You can get exposure to commodities. Uh, are they more attractive in, in this type of environment? In an inflationary environment, real assets tend to <coughs> experience more modest drawdowns than, than financial assets. So that, that is indeed something that which we observe empirically. But then you need to be a little bit more um, diversified within real assets. So <coughs> the kind of real assets that that do best are those that have some kind of linkage to inflation. So, for example, if you think about an infrastructure asset, uh, uh, you know, a toll road, for example, that has price increases every year that are linked to a spread over or linked to the inflation rates. So obviously, as the inflation rate goes up, the price increases for that infrastructure asset that the, that the customers have to use go up. So that's something which shows resilience. I think real estate is is is, is challenged in some areas, particularly in, in residential markets where there's been historically an oversupply or an excess run on prices. So what you're seeing now in residential real estate markets in certain places such as Canada and Sweden, you know, severe downwards pressure on pricing given the, the excessive levels that they got to. Um, and in commercial real estate is, is another example where you've got to look at the supply versus demand, particularly in office, not just because of inflation economic factors, but also post-pandemic. You know, what kind of demand picture are we seeing now? Um, and also what, what is the pipeline of new assets coming onto the market? So Yes, in general, real assets give you somewhat more resilience than, than financial assets in an inflationary environment, but you really have to um, get the right mix because because certain micro markets within real asset classes are vulnerable in, in, a, in a high and rising rate environment. Let me, let me just continue with this theme of some of the cross-asset class moves that we're seeing because there's some very interesting things going on. We've had some data from BlackRock. Um, and they've noted that investment-grade corporate bond ETFs have second, suffered their second-highest monthly outflows on record in September. Analysis shows over four billion US dollars from investment-grade credit TTFs was taken out, focused on US ETFs, and that's only been exceeded once before back in beginning of 2020. And that money. Yeah, seems to be going into U.S. equity ETFs and uh, particularly large cap um, equities. They've poured $35 billion into U.S. equity ETFs. That's more than three times the inflows that were registered um, in August. And a lot of that going into large cap exposures. This is, um, uh, Mark, this seems to be, well, well, this seems, I mean, I don't know if the same people who are selling credit are then going to buy equities but it does seem to suggest, doesn't it, that what people are doing is selling the credit of large companies and then going to buy the equity of those very same um, large companies. 
I think it's a consequence of suffering losses from the duration risk that, that investment-grade corporate bonds um, gives you. So when you when you invest in investment-grade corporate bonds, um, you're doing it on a total return basis. So even though you're getting an excess return, assuming that spreads at least stay stable over, over government bonds, if rates continue to rise and, and government bond yields continue to spike, then you'll make a negative total return on holding those investment-grade bonds. So I think it's a consequence of suffering capital losses, which have offset the income stream that those bonds have given you. And why the rotation into US equities? Well, I think it's it's a case of the fact that US equities, particularly large cap tech stocks, are up this year. Uh, and that's confounded a lot of people's expectations, given mm. the monetary policy backdrop. But people perceive that to be a safer asset class and, and are assuming that the positive returns that they've delivered up until now this year will continue. And you know, seasonally, the fourth quarter, particularly from mid-October onwards, tends to be, on average, and I stress on average, a, a, a strong environment for US equities. And so I think that rotation is somewhat uh, reactive rather than anticipatory, but, but, but they may actually be proven right, um, given, given the seasonality that I mentioned. Andrew, what, what do you think? I mean, the, the, there are some strange moves going on, aren't there? I mean, we're seeing strength in US equities despite a lot of turmoil uh, in the world and um, despite um, rising bond yields, certainly until this week um, anyway. But uh, are US large caps, are they being seen as a haven play at the moment? Well, I'll go back to what you've actually said. They appear to be selling corporate bonds and buying uh, corporate equities. And the answer is, is yeah, that makes, that makes a huge amount of sense to the extent that uh, if one was doing one-on-one economics and you said, what has happened to interest rates? They have increased 11 times. Are they likely to increase again? Uh, likely, but uh, we're assuming a very, a very small, modest increase. And so what happens next? What happens next? If you wait long enough, they will come down. You know, Newton's uh, physics applied to economics. Duh. Okay, so it makes some sense. If you're going to position yourself longer term, you should be bearish on, uh, on, on interest rates. And hence, if you're getting out, well, what are you going to do? You will not be holding cash because, again, yields are likely to come down. You'll try to go into equities. So I, uh, you know, I don't see I don't see anything uh, uh, hugely instructive in this mm. one. It's not something that you will say, "Good God, really? They're doing that well." That is very odd. Okay, no, it isn't. All right, let me switch to China then. See if I can find something here that might get you excited. I mean, China's considering raising its budget deficit for 2023 and launching a new round of stimulus to help the economy meet its official growth targets. Policymakers are weighing the issuance of at least one trillion yuan. That's about 137 billion US dollars of additional sovereign debt for spending on infrastructure. Uh, and that could raise the budget deficit to well above the 3% cap uh, set in March. I mean, Andrew, this is does seem to me to be significant, doesn't it, in the sense that it's a change. It's normally local governments that finance these infrastructure pro- uh, projects. Beijing seems to be recognising at last that um, the, the local governments are really constrained in their ability to do this um, anymore. And therefore, if they want to stop infrastructure spending falling off a cliff, then Beijing's got to step in and they've got to finance this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, at, lo- at long bloody last, uh, again, not because I was at all thinking that I was right, I have been begging for the fiscal deficit in China to increase because they can well and massively can afford it. But they have actually told us repeatedly, we're not going to do the same thing that the Americans do in 08 or 09 when they have a huge real estate crisis, and we're going to use the fiscal deficit to cure this. And the answer is that's exactly what they are going to do, not because I'm telling them, but because it makes a great deal of sense to do this. 
because they can afford it. China is a huge net global lender. Okay, mm. just like is Japan, and that's why Japan can afford the fiscal deficit. <laughs> Actually, correction, the national debt to GDP, which is a meaningless, useless ratio, but everybody uses it, so I'm stuck with that, of 200%. Okay, nothing is happening to them. Why? Because most of it is domestically held, and because Japan has had, historically speaking, a current account surplus, which means they are lending money to everybody else. They're not borrowing. It's the single biggest holder of, uh, of U.S. government bonds, followed closely by, ha guess what, China. So yes, China can, should, and hopefully will increase its fiscal deficit. Now, how, what they're going to do with it, God knows, it's a mm huge -hmm. They just announced uh, a 9% increase in defense spending. Hey, fantastic. I'm, I'm delighted with that. So possibly part of the deficit is going to go in buying arms. Great. Mm -hmm. okay. And since uh, China also is a major exporter of arms, they are not going to be importing arms, possibly. They will be spending it at home. Uh, does it increase uh, jobs? Well, I have really, I have never delved significantly into the impact of local defense spending in China as opposed to simply gross overall. So I'm speaking too much. The answer is yes, I'm delighted they are planning to increase the fiscal deficit. Good time. Okay, Mark, what do you think about this? I mean, it is a change, isn't it? China's for years been loading debt onto the balance sheets of local governments to, to fund uh, the infrastructure spending. They're basically saying that they are now going to do it. I mean, obviously, we hope it goes into productive assets and productive uh, parts of the economy and ultimately helps uh, consumer demand. But nevertheless, this is a significant change. Well, it's sound economic policy to increase your, your spending when interest rates are low. So domestic interest rates in China are low and have actually been incrementally falling. So they're at a very different monetary cycle to, to most other major economies. So it makes sense that they're expanding their fiscal uh, policy settings whilst rates are low. So yeah, tick that box. As to how they spend that money, I think Andrew is right. I think a, a large chunk of that will go on on, on national defence and military expansion. Um, then also what you're seeing in terms of the, the, the mix, the decomposition of, of loan growth, it's shifting to some extent away from infrastructure because obviously that's been a huge underpinning of their economic activity in the last few years. And it's being pushed more towards the corporate sector. Now, it's a question mark as to whether actually uh, corporates feel sufficiently confident about the opportunities to extend credit and whether there's sufficient demand. But that means there's a slightly increased chance because of the multiplier effects that that money will find its way into the hands of households and, and smaller businesses, which will then have a greater multiplier effect in terms of nominal GDP. Um, but, but there's still a concern in terms of the, let's say, the political cycle that actually all other moves have been towards centralization of economic decision-making rather than effectively devolving those those economic decision-making to households and to smaller businesses. So uh, we're still somewhat circumspect about the genuine intentions here and the genuine scale of, of, of fiscal stimulus. But nevertheless, it's, it's sound from an economic policy perspective, given the cost of borrowing is so low in China right now. Does it change the outlook for Chinese equities at all? We, I mean, it has been noticeable that we've had a big bounce in the Hang Seng over the last sort of five days, about a 4% bounce. Does this sort of change the outlook at all, this, this change in approach to fiscal spending? Yeah, we, we take a slightly more constructive stance cyclically tactically short term, yes. Longer term, there are still some major secular challenges which remain unresolved. Andrew, final word to you. Does this change your outlook for Chinese equities? Uh, not yet, I'm afraid, because uh, I want to see, you know, I'm, I'm also obsessed with one particular index, and that is uh, the prices of uh, 
new residential properties in the 70 uh, cities across China, which uh, has been an amazing performance of, of zero to negative changes for nearly a year and a half. I want to see this sticking up. And then I will say, mm, it looks as if, uh, uh, in terms of at least expectational aspects, this, this, this is uh, improving. But uh, the signs are good. And now with the fiscal deficit going up, at least we have something much more concrete than the 30 to 31 measures that were promised to us in September, and we're still waiting. Mm. <laughs> okay, well, thank you both very much. Very interesting discussion this morning. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Mark Franklin, who's Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manu Life Investment Management here in Hong Kong. <laughs> I'm joined now by Francis Chung, who is Executive Chairman of MPF Ratings. Good morning, Francis. Welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, Peter. Um, These have been uh, unusual times, haven't they, for the markets. Um, We've seen some big losses in Chinese equities uh, this year, some big gains in uh, US uh, equities, and huge volatility in the bond markets. How has that affected the performance of uh, the MPF funds? Yeah, no, you're right. There's there's been really nowhere to hide. I mean, US equities has been relatively strong this year, but I think uh, most of your listeners know that uh, returns there have been actually highly concentrated amongst a handful of stocks. Uh, local equities haven't done so well, so the dispersion between the two markets continues to be fairly extreme. Um, in the month of September, all asset classes did uh, fairly poorly, and as you said, uh, the bond market is... Um, is in the line of fire uh, for most people. So um, year to date now, where uh, within the MPF system, returns are negative. Um, and if we track for the final quarter, this could possibly be the um, third consecutive year of losses within the MPF system. We've never seen that before, have we? That's never occurred before. Um, but I caveat that by saying whilst we have had some extraordinary events over the two plus decades of MPF, I mean, the last few years have been extremely difficult for a multitude of reasons. And, and what's the year to date loss so far uh, on, on average for, for MPF funds? Uh, year to date losses, relatively flat. It's just, I mean, it's just gone negative. It's mm. like 20 basis points of loss on a weighted asset basis. But September wasn't a very good month, but was it? That no, really subtracted no. from the overall year-to-date S- performance. September was a difficult month. I mean, you know, just to put that into context, um, you know, up to August we were positive. I guess we we're a couple of percent positive, and then just in the month of September, average MPF returns were down about two point seven percent. Okay, but uh, assets overall, they are up, aren't they, in in the fund? Yeah, and you know that was the point that I'd sort of made in a recent press release, which is it's an unusual paradox that notwithstanding that investment returns are now negative, uh, the size of the market has actually grown, and that kind of highlights the importance of contributions. And, And I think that's one thing that people mustn't forget, that the MPF system, whilst investment is a big component of it, contributions are incredibly important. Mm, yes, and, and that's what's presumably brought up uh, the, the, the balances on people's MPF accounts. Uh, that's correct, and, um, and it's not just your, um, your mandatory contributions from employers, but it's also voluntary contributions, which are top-ups that um, employers and employees make, and employers get a tax deduction, and also the introduction of tax voluntary contributions for in- individuals. 
um, beyond sort of the traditional mandatory and voluntary contributions, individuals can make their own top-ups uh, within a tax-effective environment, and and that was that was undertaken, I think, three or four years ago, and that continues to grow. Um, but I suppose, though, from from an investor um, who's got an MPF account, you want to see more than just um, your contributions. You want to see some sort of investment growth, don't you? So are, are people expressing disappointment about the performance? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, the um, I, I recently... Um, I was recently at an investment conference and it had nothing to do with MPF, but it was a global investment conference. And, and one of the speakers made this point about sort of returns relative to fees to, for fund managers, <laughs> and, mm. uh, which I always found rather amusing because fund managers do get paid extremely well. And, and this particular speaker made the point that most investors are more than happy to pay fees to fund managers if they're getting a commensurate return back. And I think that's the key thing here, which is this whole concept of value for money. Um, so you're right, whilst I would say that MPF is a saving and investment platform for retirement, um, there is a symbi symbiotic and equal relationship between contributions and investment returns, and that's what members should expect. Mm. But the fees are an issue, aren't they? Because they ultimately, they eat into your returns, and, and you have the multiplier effects that, you know, the longer it goes on, the more these fees eat into your, uh, eat into your returns. So, you know, as you would with any type of um, fund, you need to look at the costs uh, associated with those funds. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and fees have, uh, you know, fees have always been a very topical issue within, within, within MPF. And I think pre-DIS, um, when fees were seen to be high, and we sort of saw this regular sort of reduction of fees, and I think the introduction of the default investment strategies has put a cap on fees. Uh, the fees discussion has become less and less. However, um, with the uh, impending introduction of EMPF to make um, the operational side of MPF more efficient, yeah, the regulator, the MPFA, has sort of constantly said that with greater efficiencies, members should see lower fees. I'm really not sure how low fees can get from where we are because you get to an inflection point where margins become squeezed so much that you can't actually reinvest in the system or the sponsors can't reinvest back into their to their scheme to make mm. the whole user experience um uh, better so i think that's you know that that's that's one that um, at mpf ratings we are we're monitoring closely uh, we have a slightly sort of differing view which is that whilst low fees are important because as you said there's this compounding effect on on uh, net of fees return at some stage you know what we want is for the, the scheme sponsors who are the, um, the custodians i guess of the mpf members uh, to actually sort of reinvest in their business to just Im improve the overall experience of a member's um, mm. MPF um, experience. But the performance is going to be a big part of that experience, isn't it, of course. I'm wondering, what do the fund managers say to to sort of try and address this because of course they can't do anything about the markets the markets are what they are they're going to do what they are but in general mpfs are not index funds they they are actively managed funds and fund managers say look you know we provide value because we can outperform those benchmark indices yep. by carefully managing the funds selecting the right stocks getting all the best research and that's why we charge more than say just being an index fund yeah. except it doesn't happen well, <laughs> they underperform yeah 
<laughs> look as as a as a former fund manager i um i um i feel your your uh, your your the pain in your voice resonates with me, uh, Peter. Um, yeah, look, it's an interesting one because I've always been a big believer that you've got to be able to explain and justify performance. And, you know, I sort of mentioned earlier about sort of US equities. US equities, for example, this year has been very strong, but, you mm. know, it's only been a handful of stocks, which I think have morphed from the fangs to the magnificent seven that, mm. that account for the vast, vast majority about, of performance. Uh, most of 98% of the performance. Well, exactly. Now, now I would... I would suggest that um, if you are a active fund manager managing based on discipline and your investment process, I would fully expect that the chances of you outperforming that particular incidence would be would be relatively low. You would be mm-hmm. taking what fund managers would say, sort of, uh, you know, sort of quite significant benchmark risk mm-hmm. to generate those sort of returns. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that said, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, fund managers, in, in by and large, do take returns that markets give, and that's the same thing that we actually say to individuals and members as well. Which is, look, the MPF system doesn't actually give you the return the, the system has no control over that return and frankly speaking as a member you don't necessarily have direct control over that return as well what you do have control over however is the risk side um, and that comes with diversity and that comes with the focus on long-term investing um, and that that comes with um, contributing regularly you know topping up particularly mm. in falling markets and that's no different to active fund managers i guess because you know o- over a shorter period of time you know active fund managers will underperform you know based on particular circumstances and their particular style and investment process but you would hope that over the long term based on their process and their philosophy they will outperform but as a member what i would suggest is that you've got to look at managers with differing styles you've got to diversify by style by size by geography and all of those things and also by asset class but that's very difficult for individual members to do and that's why we always go back and and sort of promote the idea of the diversified investment strategy funds which are well diversified mandated by the mpfa and have a fee cap of less than one percent so that that active investment decision for members is taken out of their hands but what they've got to do is invest for the long term now this diversification strategy is also interesting at the moment as well isn't it because you know people will often say financial advisors will often say a good um, diversified strategy is the 60 40 strategy 60 percent in equities 40 percent in fixed income which is i think what the diversified fund sort of follows isn't it along those along those lines but nevertheless this diversified fund the last couple of years um, won't have done that well because no. the problem is both equities and bonds are starting to correlate and move in line. So yeah, you're seeing yeah. equities go down and bonds go down at the same time. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, sort of, you know, I, I'm kind of, this is like a second generation experience for me. I, I think for, a, um, you know, I, I, I sort of reflect on this and, and yeah, there, there's a generation of, of MPF members active in employees in Hong Kong that have never experienced sort of this environment ever before Mm. you know they've Mm. been in a sustained growth um, equity favorable environment and there are periods and extended periods where bonds and equities are are highly correlated and and I think the MPFA have recognized this and late last year they introduced a um, um, a, uh, a circular 
which I personally found a bit amusing because it um, it, uh, it it was they quoted that it superseded a particular circular, and I looked at the circular, and it dated back to 2011, and it was all about um, the fact that um, they were refining the approval criteria for um, MPF. Um, approved investment funds uh, because they recognise that the environment is changing. But mm. as I said, you know, um, this circular superseded one going back to 2011. So, so it's a change, but it's taken a little while. And I think there, there, there needs to be this appreciation that um, that diversifying assets or um, asset classes that. Uh, don't necessarily correlate or are less correlated to traditional financial assets of equity and bonds play a role in diversified portfolios. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I can sit here as long as you want me to and talk about the importance of focusing on long-term and focusing on diversification. But as you quite quite rightly point out, there are periods of time and they can be extended. Um, You know, know, five years of highly correlated equity and bonds or, you know, in in falling markets over an average 20-year or, sorry, 40-year employment life. I mean, that's a pretty significant Mm -hmm. uh, time frame. So I think you know the the, uh, the MPFA are on the right path. I don't know how far they'll go in terms of um, uh, you know broadening out that a- approval criteria. We've spoken to them about particular asset classes that we believe provide um, excellent diversification, but pro- provide the requisite liquidity that they want and security. Um, and um, as I said, they, they are looking at it, which, is, which in itself is positive. I, I can see a risk here because if you go and look at, say, a diversified ETF that follows that 60-40 strategy, last year it would have lost about 16-17% yes. because we had, you know, this um, what is normally an inverse correlation became correlated yes. um, instead. And therefore, people are starting to question, well, should we abandon this strategy? But the thing is, the message must be, mustn't it, for investors, diversification is good. It's a good long-term strategy for your portfolio. And in general, if you look back over decades, having diversified portfolios outperforms. Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. You know, by, buying an ETF, just because you've bought something that tracks an index doesn't mean that you're not taking any risk. You are taking index risk, mm. one. Two, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, for all the pain that members or or the general public are going through in their own portfolios at the moment, you know, if you look over the long term, um, a diversified portfolio biased to growth actually outperforms. And, you know, I was asked this question by a local publication yesterday as to what, what should a retiree do now and should they take their money out? And I, you know, and... And, and it revolved around the same issue about sort of bonds and, and, and equities. And I suddenly realised that, you know, if you retire at 65 and Hong Kong has the one of the longest life expectancies in the world, around 85 years, you're going to live mm-hmm. for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you've got to make enough money, make money to retire, for to live for two decades over a walking, working life of 40 years. You know, like mm-hmm. that... that Fifty percent. It's it's it's, you know. And so, hand on heart, you cannot tell someone who's close to retirement. Oh, look! Now that you're retiring, you should go defensive. Yeah, because you're yeah. not going to have enough money to yes. actually yeah. live in the in in arguably the most important time of your life, uh, which is when you've got a lot of the health issues and you're incapacitated and you have absolutely no chance of actually doing any 
work mm. part-time or full-time, which is as you approach 80 and beyond. Mm. Very interesting times, aren't they, in the markets? Well, Francis, Truly. thank you very much for coming in. Good to hear much. your thoughts again. That's Francis Chung, who is Executive Chairman at MPF Ratings. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.